Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title, we are talking about 30 years and 30 lessons. So as our listeners know, this is a podcast about leadership. Many of our listeners are pastors or lay people who want to lead better now, and we are all seeking to glean practical insight into how to lead better for the glory of God. This month marks a special day for Aaron, uh, 30 years since you started on staff at a church in a pastoral internship. And I know there's probably hundreds, probably thousands of lessons that you could speak to, but today we're going to cover 30 specific lessons you've learned in these 30 years. And they're not in any particular order, but I'm sure they're going to be a blessing. So to set the context for us, Aaron, I know every leader has a different life story that affects how we lead. So maybe you could explain for our listeners a little bit about your pastoral journey, your educational journey over the past 30 years, and maybe even where you've served and how you got your formal training. I can't remember. I'm too old for, uh, <laughs> to remember back past last year. <laughs> no. Um, so I was, I was raised in a, a Christian home. My parents split when I was uh, 10. So then from there forward, I was raised in a single parent home. Always, uh, we moved around a lot. Always uh, was able to find uh, a faithful church to attend where I was taught and mentored. Church, some of them were tiny little churches. Some of them were more medium-sized churches, but the Lord always saw fit to bring faithful men and mentors into my life to train me up. I intended to go into the trades. Uh, long story short, in uh, in my final year of high school, I was uh, influenced by a youth pastor and a college president and a couple of friends to consider training for vocational ministry, which caught my interest. And I enrolled at what was called London Baptist Bible College in London, Ontario, Canada in uh, 1991. I uh, persevered through a five-year, what's called a Bachelor's of Theology degree. I minored in missions and youth ministry. After my fourth year and before my fifth year, I met my wife. Um, during that time, I'd been invited to start as an intern. So this had been in uh, April of 1993. I interned at a church called Eastwood Fellowship Baptist Church in St. Thomas. Served there for three years and three months. Uh, part of that time was under a uh, a uh, very competent pastor by the name of Dr. Richard Clay, who then moved to the U.S. I then um, was more or less by myself. There was some other interns around. He ultimately left, and right around the time that I was leaving, they were bringing in a new pastor. I um, graduated from Bible college, as I mentioned, in 96. Uh, uh, my wife and I relocated to Windsor. I served for four years and six months, I think, at Campbell Baptist Church in Windsor as an associate youth pastor, and then later as an associate pastor. I was uh, serving under the leadership of a man by the name of Dr. Donald McKay. Uh, we discussed theology every day, and I really enjoyed that relationship. Uh, over time, it became evident to me that I needed to do something more outreach missional, missionary-minded. So my wife and I thought about becoming missionaries in Bosnia, and um we also entertained the, the possibility of a pastoring a couple churches in um, in Toronto. But through all of that, I, I just really had this burden for South Windsor. At the time, South Windsor, 
this is going back 20, almost 22 years, South Windsor was sort of booming with growth. A lot of houses were being built at that time. And we decided to um, plant a church in South Windsor. Now, during that time, I had started my Master of Divinity degree in Michigan, about 40 minutes away, at a school called Michigan Theological Seminary, which is now the Michigan campus of Moody Theological Seminary. So I was working full-time at the church. I was working on my MDiv, finished my MDiv in 1999, and um, started teaching part-time for Heritage College, which is um, uh, an undergraduate college, Bible college here in Ontario. Was an adjunct professor there for, for several years on and off, teaching at their Michigan campus. We had a Windsor campus for a while, a Cambridge campus. Then I planted the church. So we planted this church in um, 2001. So I've been in this church now for, um, well, I guess it would be, what are, we, what are we at, 2023. So this would be 22 years, um, having planted this church with you know, a handful of people. And, and, and now we have a, a large prevailing church here in Windsor. After the church was uh, up and running for a little while, I um, would travel back and forth to Liberty University in Virginia, and I finished my uh, Doctor of Ministry with um, emphasis in spiritual formation in 2006. Was doing some teaching at uh, at the Heritage Seminary and co College and Seminary in Cambridge. And what I would do is I'd leave like really early in the morning, 4.30, 5.30, 6 o'clock, depending on the class time, I'd drive up. I would go to um, Wilfrid Laurier University uh, and I would take classes as a student. And then I earned uh, a master's of theology in homiletics, which I think I was the last guy to graduate with that degree. And then they, they don't offer it anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, then I would go over to Heritage in the evenings and I would teach and I would come home. So I'd be like a, a student and a professor in the yeah. same day, which was which was a lot of fun. And it was during that period of time that I actually met you. I don't remember what year would it be that you and I first met. I think 2010 or 11, fall of 2010 or spring of 2011. I yeah, think. so you, you were working on your uh, undergraduate degree and we're in a couple of my classes. So... Um, yeah, academically, I earned four degrees and really enjoyed that process. I'll speak to that in a moment, but um, have served in ch three churches, uh, Eastwood, Campbell, and now Harvest. Originally, our church was called uh, Southwood Community Church for about uh, 17 years, and then we we had joined the Harvest Bible Fellowship, and then five months later, it closed. So we were actually only in the Harvest Bible Fellowship formally for five months. So we're... Um, you know, we kept the name, dropped the word chapel, put the word church in so as not to confuse people who might think they were attending a, a, a wedding chapel. And um, one other point, we've been instrumental in planting a few other churches in our area. We planted uh, North Shore Community Church in Bell River. We sort of um, revitalized and then passed off a church in LaSalle called Faith Community. Uh, we had a church on campus at the University of Windsor for five years called the Vine Church. And then we we have a church launching in Northwest Texas with several of our families uh, this Sunday, actually, called um, Harvest Bible Church Paris. So married five kids, one grandbaby, and uh, 
one grandbaby out and breathing yeah. and uh, <laughs> one grandbaby on the way. That's awesome. So I'm just saying that not to, um, like my, my resume is not interesting. It's just that's that's kind of my story. And all, all of those events have shaped my education and my pastoral ministry have shaped how I think about ministry. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I served on um, uh, three boards, one one provincial board for a, a, a fellowship of churches, one national board, another international board. I served as a fire chaplain part-time for four years. Um, actually, I taught in a Christian high school, uh, some technology courses and world religions courses for a couple of years. So kind of have done a, a variety of things uh, in addition to my my main mm-hmm. pastoral work. Yeah, which I think is a, a good way to say you've been around the block a couple of times. Yeah. So when you talk about leadership principles, I know this as a young le- younger leader. Um, it's helpful to talk to somebody who has had a variety of experiences, not just in one silo, so to speak. Even as you've led here at the church, it's been helpful knowing that you spent time in youth ministry. So some of the lessons that have been learned are not just... Uh, they're, they're more universally applicable. And so maybe we'll get into then what are some of those lessons. So starting with number one, not in any particular order, but what's number right. one? Right. How do you want to lead out the gates? Yeah, some of the lessons I want to share are specific to vocational pastors, but most of them are applicable to anyone serving in church leadership, lay elders, lay pastors, various directors of ministry, small group leaders, people in other uh, church roles outside of the church institute, now, obviously, I just want to say, obviously, our, our walk with Christ, our integrity, bearing the fruits of the Spirit, learning to study the Scriptures, learning our theology, these are all key to our growth. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to share some wisdom that I've learned from life experience and from others. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any real original thoughts, but these are things I've learned. So more observational, experiential, wisdom-based lessons. So in no particular order, well, the first one that I, I jotted down is... Um, Long-term ministry is hard on a certain level, but far easier in the long term. When I started out in church ministry in April of 93, it was not uncommon for youth guys and associates to move from church to church every two years and for senior pastors to move every five years. So that I'm not sure where that came from, but I, f- I think that's very unhealthy and destabilizing to a church when people jump from church to church to church. It's hard to trust a person that's casting vision and mm-hmm. calling you to long-term faithfulness and perseverance when you're not even sure if they're going to be here next week. So I just committed myself to sort of a lifetime ministry approach. So when I pastor my church, and I, I donned this mindset when we planted this church, my thinking is I will pastor this church until the church can no longer put up with me or I'm in a wood box. I'm not a keen believer in retirement. I think that's an extra biblical category. I, I may at some point retire from a salary. I don't know. I, you know, There's been times that I've already turned down raises and whatnot because I'm not in this for the money. Um, but I am, even though the church is you know, very generous, I and I do receive a salary. That's not why I do what I do. And people that know me know that about me. I don't do this for the money. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was thinking to myself, I probably lost around half a million dollars in income and 
uh, you know, when I was in school. I mean, I, I did the equivalent of nine years of full-time schooling. And, you know, there's nine years of salary add on to that. All sorts of, um, you know, tuition, th- tens of thousands of dollars of, of tuition. So it's a sacrifice to pursue that kind of education. I didn't do it because I thought I was going to make big dollars at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I did it because I wanted to serve the Lord, and that was one of the things that would best position me for it. Um, so when I when I serve the Lord, I I I have this. I don't have this employment mindset. I have this long term serve in the same place, long term create your own problems. Don't adopt other people's children so much as you know, create your own and take responsibility for them. And the beautiful thing now having, like for example, I, I've, um, I, I've now done uh, one wedding uh, whose parents I also married, hmm. and there's gonna be a second one. Actually, my, my son is marrying a girl this July, and I did her parents' wedding back when I was a youth pastor. So long-term ministry in the same location is pretty cool because you get to see the generational influence and impact of your ministry. It's not to say that people can't move or you're a bad person if you move around. There's obviously times when that's necessary, but I think more people need to go into ministry and into their churches and into their um, roles thinking long-term. I met a, a man from my previous church at a hardware store a couple weeks ago, and he I asked him if he's still teaching the same class. Best as I can tell, he's been teaching the same Sunday school class for over 25 years. Wow. And that's the kind of thing we need, not just on a vocational level, but also on a lay level. People that are committed to the long haul, it's a beautiful thing to be able to say, you know, I've I've been here for a long, long time. Now, again, if the church goes sideways, there's heresy, false teaching, I get it. But too many people jump from church to church just because they don't like the music style or someone offends them or, the, you know, they didn't get invited over for dinner or whatever it might be, and they rob themselves of the perseverance and the patience that comes from long-term ministry. Yeah, the blessing of seeing the fruit that's born, right? Yeah. So now tied to that, maybe speak to uh, it can be easy to hold on to things. Yeah, I, I've tried to, um, this is an illustration that someone else shared with me in a restaurant many years ago. If picture your hand, uh, you need to steward your ministry with a cupped hand, not a closed fist. Don't clench it too tightly. I was telling my wife this morning in the way in, one of the things I've I've tried to do in all areas of life is not to find my identity in my God-given assignments. So, for example, I'm a husband, but that's not my identity. You know, the Lord could take my wife from me. I'm a father, but that's not my identity. The Lord could take my children from me. I'm a pastor, but that's not my identity. The Lord could take that from me. I'm a Canadian, but that's not my identity. I, I'm a pastor, but that's not my identity. My identity is not in what I do. My identity is in Christ, and that's the difference between a stewardship and an ownership mindset. I don't own anything. I just steward it. So I've been learning over the years to try to hold on to and steward what God has entrusted me with, my wife, my children, my church, my possessions. But at any point in time, if the Lord wants them back, they're his. And my ident—I'm not going to deteriorate or become, you know, an, a non-existent person if I don't—if I can't preach or pastor. I don't need to do anything to be loved and affirmed by God. So that's a—that's an important lesson that that I've um, learned. Another lesson I've learned, Chris, is this is number three: is 
if if someone in your church or in your ministry peer, appears to be too good to be true, they probably are. I have found that the best relationships and the most most faithful people are those that are integrated into the church at a reasonable speed, who take their time to get to know you. I, I was told years ago by an older mentor that when you when you go into a church as a new pastor, it's usually the people that are most excited to see you and are right at the door welcoming you in. That will be the ones laying their boot to the seat of your pants to kick you out. And I've I've learned that over the years that some people are just too good to be true. Like if a person comes across as perfect and you know 100% committed and 100% in and you know abs- loves your preaching and loves your leadership and can't say enough about your church and they're probably not going to stay. They're often driven by emotion or they're driven by a desire for prominence or position or office. So I, I've just learned over the years as a wisdom principle that um, it, you know, I'm not advocating for dragging your feet when you're integrating into the life of the church, but everyone comes with their flaws and baggage, and the most normal people are the ones that are willing to demonstrate their strengths and their weaknesses and not present themselves as you know super spiritual or, or too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, would you say, and that's like an agenda, sometimes they come with an agenda yeah. or yeah. watch out for flattery type things, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I mean, I'm not looking for criticism, <laughs> but um, people that puff you up are are often um, those that will be the most venomous in the long haul because you can't. There, there's sometimes sometimes people now very few, but sometimes people idolize those in leadership. The reality is, you know your own weaknesses. You can never measure up to those standards, and over time, you're going to disappoint them. Whereas people that have a more reasonable view of leadership and are a little more, shall we say, measured in their the way they approach you and interact with you and build a relationship with you are going to be long-term friends more often than not. A fourth lesson is just lighten up, be yourself. I think a lot of pastors in particular and people in the life of the church have a mental image of this very stoic, very poised, very um, you know large and in charge individual, and and they sort of role play a little bit. They try to be someone they're not. You'll notice this when every once in a while I'll I'll click on some church's website and I'll kind of watch a few pieces of their um, you know on online service just to see what they're doing, and I see it all the time. This this. Uh, it's hard to explain if you, it's one of those things that's more caught than taught even, but there's a certain fakery, there's a certain learned behavior in the way people often introduce a service or introduce announcements or try to present themselves as this very stoic, very serious, very super spiritual person. It's like, that's not how you are in the foyer. Like, stop being someone different in the foyer than you are on the uh, on the platform or stop being someone different when I'm sitting around your kitchen table than you are when you're running your small group, like just be yourself. Now that doesn't mean you do need to be a little bit guarded in life. I've had to learn this because I'm not naturally a guarded person. I'm naturally pretty, pretty open, but some people are, are looking for chinks in your armor, right? They're looking for, it's like, tell me something about yourself that I can eventually use against you. So even in sermon illustrations, when you're talking about your sin, don't get too specific. It's not that you're trying to hide. General acknowledgement of your sin and weaknesses is good, 
But when you start to get into the specifics of it, there's a lot of people that would just use that against you. And it's not your fault, it's theirs. So being being open and vulnerable and lighthearted about ministry, but also you know being aware that we live in a dangerous world and there's some bad people out there and there's even some very immature Christians that have an agenda and you don't want to give them fuel for the fire because it just creates drama for you to have to deal with at, at some point um, down the road. Mm-hmm. I, I just on that mo- that idea of being yourself, I think one of the things that uh, catches people off guard because you don't use the pulpit for humor necessarily, though you don't avoid it. But I think when people get to know you, they're like, whoa, he's he's actually like a normal person, <laughs> right? So. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's there's a place, there's, there, like, there's a limited amount of self-disclosure you can do uh, in a sermon. That's not the point of the sermon. You're teaching the Word of God. But, um, you know, people show up to our farm and, see me walking around in a manure pile or building a shed or it, it sort of throws them off. It's like, what? I thought this guy was this guy that just prays and studies the Bible in his office all the time. And that is a little bit, a little bit fun. I mean, I, I've, I think one of my kids said, if people saw dad on a Saturday compared to the way he looks on a Sunday, they'd probably be shocked. Cause sometimes I'll, you know, I'll go to the lumber yard and I'm wearing old cruddy overalls and a, beat up ball hat and you know if people ask you what do you do and you say i'm a pastor it's kind of give you a double take Mm -hmm. so we do have different uh uh, it's not that we have different versions of ourselves but there's different contexts that we find ourselves in but i i'm not my i've never attempted to be someone different at the church than i am at home i just think that's kind of gross that that's that's being a poser and can lead to hypocrisy which kind of leads into the fifth point, and that is don't try to be someone you're you're not. Find over time with the input of God's people, find out what your gifts and abilities are and just um, thrive in the way that God has designed you. So drop the fake, fake expressions, drop the fake preacher's whine. Um, you know, what I mean by that is, ladies and gentlemen, I'd love to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3 as we exposit the Word of God today. It's like, come on, man. Like, what is that? That's a preacher's one. That's that's not how you talk in the foyer. Like, drop the act. You actually subtly signal that there's some difference between, you know, Monday to Saturday Christianity and Sunday Christianity. It's like people that say, oh, I got to wear a suit to church. Oh, really? Because God only shows up at churches? Well, I want to give him my best. You don't give him your best on Monday? Like, I don't care if you wear a suit to church. That's fine. But this this dualism of there's a spiritual life and then there's every, everything else. And I, I got to dress up. I got to act different. I got to talk differently when I'm when I'm doing something spiritual, quote unquote. It, it, it's not cool. And it's posing. Um Tied to that is the sin of vanity. It's an undertaught sin in our churches. But a, a lot of pastors, I believe, are very insecure people. Not the majority, but there's a lot. They're insecure. And I see that because they seem to want to desperately present this image of themselves, you know, whether it's the, you know, the dramatic preaching shot as their their uh, Facebook photo or you know, standing in front of the podium, pounding on the podium. It, it's just kind of weird, dude. Like, drop the act. Like, just be a real person. I'm not opposed to a someone takes a picture of you preaching and posts it. Okay, whatever. But 
stop trying to present yourself as this holy roller. Uh, that it it breeds a certain fakery among our churches, and like it or lump it, it turns people are very skeptical of the church in in the the, the world. And we want to reach the world for Christ, and removing those barriers, that fakery, that posing is is really really important. A sixth point is if you're married, make sure you got a strong marriage. Your first ministry is to your to your husband or your wife. So, um, you know, the Bible talks about that with eldership, for example, that you're responsible to manage your household well, and your household starts with your for a pastor, your wife. But if you're in Christian leadership of any sort, just make sure that you're stoking the home fires and keeping those those burning. A seventh principle I've learned is uh, organization administration. I know organize, organization and administration, if you're not naturally geeked about that, can th- seem like boring and um, you know non-ministerial work. I just want to preach. I just want to reach people. I, I am 110% convinced that most churches struggle with growth and integration and discipleship, not because they have the Bible wrong, but because they don't have a plan, they don't have a system, they don't know how to manage more than 40 or 50 people. Mm-hmm. They, they're not developing leaders, they don't have clear paths, pathways to membership. Nobody really knows how you get involved in ministry, nobody really knows who's who in the zoo, who's who calls the shots, who I'm supposed to call for this or call for that. And you create this funnel effect where all responsibilities are pushed onto the pastor's desk, and he only has a limited amount of time. So the ministry just sort of chugs to a, a you know a halt. It's like a banana up the tailpipe, and the engine just stops. I think it's really important, whether you like it or not, whether you're bent in that direction or not, to make sure you are organized. That starts with a clear understanding of your vision, your mission, your audience, your circumstances. If you're in a church, what's our plan for developing elders? Think about that until you have a plan. How do we get people from godless heathens in the community through to fully committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, we just pray about it. Okay, whatever. I know what God does. I am a Calvinist. I am Reformed. I'm talking about your responsibility. How do you greet people? How do you help people to understand appropriate behavior in the church how do they what steps do they move through for to to baptism and church membership you need to think about that you have to have a clear discipleship plan how do you know you have a disciple what do you what are you looking for in a fully committed follower of the lord jesus christ put it put words to it organize your finances don't be stingy be well organized account for your finances make sure there's a you know checks and balances in place so no one rips the church off or someone doesn't run away with the church's funds. Countless hours have to be put into that in a a disorganized church or a new church. And then over time, once the, the, um, the infrastructure's built, you know, then you, some people like myself, I can back away from that now, but it's Mm -hmm. because I invested thousands and thousands of hours in organizing and managing and administrating in the early days of this church. I don't have to do as much of that anymore. Yeah. Tied to that, would you, and I think you could speak to this because we've grown substantially. There's different ways of doing that at different stages. So if you're, it's almost, it's almost a nice thing in some ways, if you can come in at the small stage and understand it all, but you don't have to, you just have to make sure it's taken care of. If you like, you come into a larger church setting, you have to 
know that those processes, organization outcomes, we call them around here, uh, things that we're heading towards are clearly articulated and people know they're not just assumed, right? Right. Well, there's a thousand details to that, but to, to boil it down to something people can take home with them, I would just say, whatever size your church is at, make sure you got your act together for the size you're at, and then find a church that's just the next step up or a little bit bigger, a ministry that's a little bit more developed, and just learn from them. And then if the Lord takes you to to that level, then learn from someone bigger than them and, and just keep learning and learning and gleaning from someone who's a little further ahead. It's the same with life, right? The 16-year-old looks to the 18-year-old. The 18-year-old looks to the 22-year-old. The 22-year-old looks to the 26-year-old. You kind of learn how to live life by looking to those that have gone before you. But one of the rules that is really, really important is to always act bigger than you are, meaning be a little bit ahead of the curve. So if you think, well, the church... The church can get by with two elders, develop three. You're going to need that third elder eventually. You develop three. Well, we're fine with three. Go ahead and develop five, and eventually you'll need five. Um, you know, our, our facility, it, it's comfortable, okay, but, but it's 80% full. Build bigger, plant a church, do a second service, whatever's necessary. Always get ahead of yourself. For example, a lot of churches weren't prepared for that. And during lockdowns, when faithful churches stayed uh, open and unfaithful churches closed, faithful churches were inundated with people that didn't have any, they didn't have infrastructure, leadership, capacity, uh, discipleship processes in place. And I think a lot of them felt like they were drowning. Mm-hmm. Well, that was an extreme example. But presumably, if you're being faithful to the Lord, your church is going to grow somewhat every year. And uh, you need to be ready for that. So always plan. It's like we're having another baby, then build another bedroom. We're, we're having another baby, then build another bedroom. We're having another baby. Well, then move. You have to plan ahead and not just be uh, beholden to the crisis in the moment. So that, that, that I think, is really important. On a spiritual level, disciplining sin early on, wow, we, we were hit with a whole bunch of church disciplinary issues. Some of our launch team members went sideways. There was a bunch of marital issues, and we're just like, man, there's a temptation to ignore it because you're so limited in numbers. Look, discipline sin. Discipline sin. It will hurt. It will be painful. Some people will be restored. Some people will not be restored. Discipline sin. Never compromise your mission to keep a person who's misbehaving. Never. Never, 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 never. Always a big donor. Doesn't matter. Oh, they're a cr- critical to our worship team. Doesn't matter. Oh, they're an elder. Doesn't matter. Oh, they're the pastor. Doesn't matter. Discipline sin. Discipline sin. And people will leave over that. People will run. Others will be blessed and they'll respect you for it. But at the end of the day, it's biblical. A, a, a healthy church is a church that disciplines sin. Obviously, we don't discipline a dirty look. I mean, you have to you know, pick your battles we're all being disciplined in a certain way every time we hear the Word of God preached. I mean, this podcast is a bit of a disciplinary act. We're being shaped, tweaked, molded, developed. But we're talking about like hardcore church discipline where you got to confront a sin, uh, you know, two witnesses, take it to the church, discipline sin, make sure you have a clear process for doing that. I... I know in smaller churches, the senior, the preaching pastor, the senior pastor is generally involved in that. I don't think that's a great idea when the church gets bigger. 
because it's very difficult for people that are in a disciplinary process to listen to you preach on Sunday and look you in the eye when you know you've had three meetings with them that week. So it's not about shirking your responsibility, but if you have a multiplicity of elders, a lot of that can be given to other elders who can stick handle that during the week so that you're not a distraction or distracted in your regular upfront preaching. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. In terms of staff and leadership, you're developing leaders, and some people will function very well at a certain size. So you're like, oh, we got a youth group of 10 kids, and we're going to bring Johnny in to be our youth leader. So Johnny comes in. He's a great youth leader. Suddenly, the ministry's at 20, and he's, he's starting to struggle, and now it's at 30, and he's, he's dropping the ball. He's not sending emails out. The infrastructure's not in place. You know, you hit 40 kids and suddenly the thing starts to fall apart. And you're, you know, you're bleeding youth like crazy because Johnny just doesn't have the capacity. Okay, no problem. It's not a sin to, to have limited capacity. Everyone has limited capacity. But what you want to do as you're developing leaders is set the expectations high, but don't be afraid to shuffle. Just create a culture where it's regular to shuffle people in and out of ministries if you're the guy that needs to be shuffled out of ministry or you're the woman that needs to be shuffled out of a ministry to make way, uh, you know, become the lieutenant to some other captain, no problem. It's not a competition. But generally, if you think of church leadership as, um, you know, a, t- a totem pole, maybe that's not a great analogy in light of the paganism behind it, but there's always someone at the bottom of the totem pole, right? That's that's the the least competent or least qualified in whatever ministry or church you're in. And they're the one that you have to focus on to develop them or move them into another area and bring someone else into that role. So you want to, you want to sort of, you want to encourage and train your high-end leaders, but you really want to pay attention to those people that are struggling and make sure they're not hindering the ultimate mission uh, or purposes of the church. Too often we just have this, um, maybe it's a, a like a soft-heartedness about us. Like, well, you know, Sam's run that ministry for 40 years. He's not very good at it, but he's faithful, and we don't want to step on Sam's toes or dishonor him, so we'll just keep letting him run a ministry that he's not very good at, and you know, we're not bearing fruit in it, but he's, he shows up. Well, Sam's getting in the way. If Sam's not capable of running that, he's hindering the purposes of God in that ministry, and there's nothing wrong with uh, you know having a gracious conversation with Sam and saying, hey, we think you know it's time to bring a supervisor in uh, to help you, or we're kind of reshuffling things. We want you to serve in a different area of ministry. It's not about throwing people to the curb, but uh, we all have capacity limits, and we should just be comfortable in in growing ministries to realize that if if the if the organization's getting ahead of us, it might be time for us to step back a little bit. Likewise, if an organization can't keep up with us, it might be time for us to look for another ministry. Yeah. It, when you say that, the thought to me is it's also not loving to the person because the person then becomes the focal point rather than the mission of the church as a whole. Yeah, good and point. And so it's not good for them either. Yeah, good point. Yeah. You have to be careful with bitterness and resentment. A lot of times people that have been, they think of it as a demotion, right? Because we have mm-hmm. this hierarchical mindset. It's not that. But they think of it as a demotion. They can become very bitter bitter and cynical. So there's some pastoral tact and wisdom in how to approach those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Ten would be um, don't assume you'll pastor or lead the same people for life. People come and go. I mean, people move, people die, 
people get upset with you. I, I, I remember working with a guy years ago, rattle his cage to the core, like his, it would affect his soul whenever anybody left the church. I don't like it when people leave, but people come and go. I mean, it's not unusual every five to six years to lose 50% of your congregation and then to replace with new people. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that people leave for a good reason, but that's a reality of living in, in our culture. People come and go for a variety of reasons. Don't assume you'll pastor them for life. Like Pastor the people in front of you wholeheartedly, conscientiously. Show that long-term commitment and steadfastness. But don't take it personally. Don't let it rattle your cage when you leave. Some people, you'll pastor them more than once. We've been doing this long enough. People sometimes just come back to the church after a six, seven, eight-year hiatus, which is a unique dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a person in the church that's become a member three times, you know, over the years. And, uh, you, you know, that's just a reality of, of, of the way it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to speak to education. So my eleventh lesson is just go to school, guys. Like, to, if you can, if you can get advanced training in counseling and preaching and small groups, a lot of people are just so desperate to get into ministry. They do the bare minimum uh, work in the seminary classroom or Bible college. So this is more geared towards people that are serving vocationally. Every class that you take is some way, in some way, shape, or form, shaping you for future and present ministry. I, I, just, I just think a lot of guys, they get out too quick, and they, they here's the way I would put it. The, if you spend a long time in school, like earning those advanced degrees, you will be able to write sermons way faster, counsel quicker, be sharper in leadership dynamics, you just become more speedy. I mean, it's a lot of time to invest in in schooling. I get it if you're doing a bachelor's and a master's, maybe a doctorate, maybe a, another doctorate or whatever. But I spent a lot of time in school. A lot of it, I the entire time I was serving in some capacity in my church, I didn't do the online stuff. We didn't have it. This was in class. This was driving. I think I did maybe a couple correspondence courses, but 99% of it was in class and it was expensive and it was a lot of work. But I'm thankful for for those nine years. I mean, I, I just, I feel like I think quicker, I can write quicker, I can deal with things quicker. Um, here's the thing, you either suffer in school or you suffer you know, in your office and you just shortchange yourself um, in a lot of the ministerial tasks and de- decisions that you would make. I used to have a professor that would say, having a bachelor's degree doesn't even make you dangerous to the devil. <laughs> I love it. And I was like, yeah, I get it. You know, He was just encouraging us to, to move to the next level. And I'm not trying to insult anybody that's listening that has a bachelor's degree. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not an educational, mm-hmm. um, I don't see it as an idol. For your benefit, the more time you can spend in school learning from others, I understand a lot of people are good self-learners, but there's something about being vetted, graded, be in front of someone else that's your superior year after year, class after class, the good ones, the bad ones, the ones you like, the ones you don't like, that shapes you. Mm-hmm. And there's, I, I, don't, I don't regret, some of the classes I didn't like, but I do not regret for a moment taking that very long, arduous path in, in education, again, costs a lot of money. You lose a ton load of earning capacity. Um, 
but it's worth it mm-hmm. in the in the long haul. Yeah, and to that too, uh, one professor told me the idea of you don't know what you don't know, uh, and so you are exposed to things you would not otherwise be exposed to. You have to study things then that you would not naturally, even as a self-learner, gravitate to and show interest in. Right. One of, one of the ways they historically have framed up education is bachelor students are, are um, consumers of information. By the time you finish your master's degree, you're supposed to be a communicator of that information. And by the time you finish your doctorate, you're supposed to be a creator of information. Now, that's a little bit simplistic. But the idea is... You digest the facts, you learn to communicate it, and then you learn to actually add original thoughts to your to your field of interest. Mm-hmm. So in pastoral ministry, if you want to be an original thinker and you want to be able to address the complexities of the world around you, advanced education will in a good school will help you to develop those skill sets. And you'll never regret that, right? There's a lot of guys... They have the bare minimum of education. All they can do is read commentaries or use someone else's curriculum because they've never actually learned. They just haven't had enough time in the books to learn to do the original research themselves or think on their own two feet. There's exceptions to the rule. I get it. But I I just encourage you guys, keep pursuing as much education as you can. And if you're in a lay capacity, well... Pursue as much lay training as you possibly can. Go to conferences, read books, go to training seminars. There's a lot of stuff online now. There's no excuse. We have access to more information than any generation before us. So let's just let's just get into it. Twelfth lesson is, and and I might step on some toes here. I would just say most of the drama that I've experienced in my public ministry is a result of the denominations or associations we've hitched our wagon to. We've been part of um, three where I'm not, like I have lots of relationships with pastors all over the place, but I haven't personally found that a lot of our denominational associational relationships have been particularly life-giving. They you often get sucked up in the drama of some church that's doing teaching some nonsense or at misbehaving, and then suddenly you get all these meetings and forums and venues and synods and on and on and on trying to deal with these issues and it can be quite exhausting for some people i i think they have the mindset like we, we couldn't even get by without being part of a formal organization i'm i'm here to tell you that you can and um i'm not opposed to people being part of organizations and associations but make sure the boundary lines are very clearly defined or you're going to find yourself with two full-time jobs one ministering or shepherding your own church or parachurch organization and the other dealing with denominational drama from people in other states or provinces that you don't necessarily even know that just deplete your energy banks years ago i was on this this committee i was chairing a committee in canada for a denomination surrounding baptism and membership what a nauseating exhausting experience that was it ended up just resulting in nothing positive. It's just it was frustrating, and that that the amount of time I spent on the phone in meetings and in, in sessions, writing and editing and trying to herd cats. It was just it it amounted. There was nothing redemptive about that. It went on and on and on. The whole process, I think, was like a nine year process. It was absurd. And in in hindsight, I think it was bad stewardship on my part. I just shouldn't have got involved in it. 
So like, unless you're a really bored person and you have time to stick your nose in everyone else's drama, I, I'm a fan of calling out heresy or you know reminding people outside of our church what the orthodox doctrines of God's word are. But I would just say, you know, tend to your own sheep. Put 99.999% of your time into tending to your own sheep. If you got a few bits of time left over here and there to invest more broadly in associations or initiatives, fine. But you might find that to be incredibly dramatic and draining. So take that for what you, you know, you will. I would just say don't let secondary relationships consume you is another way of putting it. Another lesson, Chris, is focus on the younger generation. I ask myself all the time, how are the 25-year-olds doing? You know, they're half my age. Are we, are we understanding them? Are we training them up? Are we ministering to them? Too many pastors, and I would say people in any area of ministry, there's just a propensity to, to tend to minister to people that are your age, you know, plus or minus a few years. I don't think that way. I jokingly say, you know, because I'll be 50 in a few weeks, I don't care what 50-year-olds think. I care what 25-year-olds think. Now, do I care what 50-year-olds think? Yes, but what I'm saying is, what I mean by that is I really, I, I, it's not the tail wagging the dog, but I'm absolutely committed, no matter how old I become, to training up the younger generation as critical leaders in the church. And I put a lot of time in that. And by the time a person's 50, if, especially if they've been walking with the Lord for a while, they shouldn't need a lot of hand-holding from me, but the younger generation does. And so this is why we did the Young Adult Conference in part. We want to invest in the younger generation, be very strategic about that. This is why we have the the high school starting here this fall. We want to invest in the younger generation. This is why I've done several discipleship groups for young men. This is why we have all kinds of young men in our staff. It's deliberate. I want to train. Life is so short, and I want to train them up for Christ. So being very strategic in that regard is important. Uh, 14 would be, there is a difference between lay lay ministry and vocational ministry. I, I think we just need to acknowledge that. We may not like that, but if if you are a lay elder and you've never served vocationally on staff of a church, this is not a bad thing, but you do not really understand what vocational pastors do. And if you're a vocational pastor and you've spent your entire life serving on a staff of a church, you don't really understand what the engineers and factory workers and business owners and growers in your church necessarily go through in a given week as well. So we have a common bond in Christ, but I'm just very comfortable being able to say, yeah, you don't understand everything about what I do, and I don't understand everything about what you do, and I'm not going to pretend that we do. So if a person is serving, for example, so let's say we have a ministerial decision to make in our church. Well, An elder's an elder's an elder. They all have equal authority in the life of the church. But practically speaking, there's a natural deference to vocational elders from the lay elders. If there's, if, if it's a, especially if it's a ministerial decision about a a direction uh, that we want to take in the life of our church, is that a bad thing? Is that advocating for some radical clergy, you know, laity distinction? No. But if you serve 40, 50, 60 hours a week, 50 weeks of the year, year after year, decade after decade, you've been to seminary and, you know, God bless them. You have a person in your church that's an engineer and is running a business and serves five, 10 hours a week for six or seven years. Well, obviously you're going to have 
a lot more time and competency to develop to make decisions about the life of the church. So all of our elders and our our leaders are are equal in their office and their ultimate authority, but we, we're we're completely fine with acknowledging that with more experience and more training comes greater competency. So we're not, I guess, another way of saying that is we're not we're not trying to create this homogeneous uh, sort of bland. Everybody's everybody's equal in every way, every decision, every every discussion. It's just it's not true. It's actually kind of a lie, actually. If you took high school biology versus have a PhD in biology and do that full time, don't pretend you know as much as a PhD in mm-hmm. biology, right? That's right. So we're we're comfortable with with treating each other well and capitalizing upon people's um, gifts without artificially making people think we all have the same gifts or abilities. I know a thing or two about you know general budgeting and financial management, but I'm if I'm sitting in front of a chartered accountant, I'm not going to pretend I know what he or she does. Mm-hmm. If I know how to frame a house, but if I'm talking to a guy that's framed a house for 50 years or, you know, I, I, I spent a few years in plumbing, but if I'm talking to a journeyman plumber, I'm going to defer to them. I'm going to assume they know more about that than I do. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with vocational ministry. Yep. Yeah. And would you say, too, there's different, let's say even if you are a vocational pastor, there's probably different types of vocational pastor? Yeah, there is. I, we were talking about this um point with our staff if you think about leaders and this is just my way of thinking about it you could probably spend a little bit more time developing it but there's different kinds of leaders there's um communicative leaders those that communicate preach teach they're not necessarily relate super relationally gifted they're not necessarily catalytic leaders they're not necessarily good managers but you can plug them into ministry to do a lot of preaching teaching communicating then you have relational leaders that are just really good with people. They make great counselors, very discerning, able to develop good good relationships in the church. There's managerial leaders, like good administrators. I would say that's probably a gift of yours. There's catalytic leaders, people that can sort of see around the curve, see over the next hill, can communicate complex truths in simple ways to people. And we're not all going to fall into every one of those categories. And what you want to do is you want to feel comfortable with who you are. And you're not going to know this in your first internship necessarily, but once you've been in ministry for a while, you just inc- it increasingly becomes clear to you or should where you are best gifted. And then you plug into that area. One of the problems in a lot of churches is we have men that are called pastors. They're, they're spo- the church wants them to be catalytic leaders or managers or relational counselors, but they're actually communicators. They're preachers. Mm-hmm. They're preachers who've been given other assignments that they're not gifted at. And it's better to say, look, you're our preacher, but maybe you're the you're the administrator. And every good every organization that's going to grow, not all of them have this, but every organization that's going to grow has to have a catalytic leader. That catalytic leader doesn't need to be you know, score super high in relationality or management, but they have to be able to cast vision and, and see around the corner. And it's not that one of those leadership roles is better than the other. It's just you need all of those things in order to move an organization forward. So if you're running a seminary and you don't have a catalytic leader, you're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. If you're wanting to um, have a prevailing church that's reaching the world for Christ and you don't have a catalytic leader, that's a problem. 
So you have to structure things in such structure things in such a way that you permit catalytic leaders to become catalytic. You don't treat them all as relational leaders, and you don't treat them all as um, mere preachers or teachers, and you don't treat them all as managers. A lot of churches expect their and and Christian organizations expect their highest leader to be all of those things, and and it's just not possible. So I like relationships. I love being with people, but I don't get out of bed in the morning thinking, oh, who can I counsel today? I used to feel bad about that, but I just don't. But some guys get out of bed in the morning, they're like, who, who can I meet with for coffee? Who can I counsel? What need can I meet? You know, What gift card can I drop off? Like, that's great. That's just not me. Um, years ago, I thought I was going to go to the Middle East as a missionary and sit in cafes all day and closed access countries and just share the gospel with with Muslims, and I tried it for a summer, and I almost felt guilty, but I realized that's just not me. I uh, is it bad, Lord? Like if if you want me to do it, I'll do it, but it's just that's not me. I mm. I thrive on public communication, organizational management, v- casting vision, starting institutions. Like that's that excites me. I don't I don't want to be a full time professor either. I don't want to just put my nose in the books and parse verbs all day. I know how to do it. But it just doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. Other people are just, you dump loads of administrative tasks on their uh, desk and they just light up. Or you, for another person, you bring four or five people in that just have desperate life issues and they just want to have a conversation. And that lights other people up. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Some guys, they just want to preach and teach. They don't want to manage. So find a position that suits you. There's different kinds of yeah. leaders in, in the church. Another lesson I've learned, Chris, is that controversies tend to repeat themselves and heresies resurface. <laughs> I'm just seeing that again. It's like we fought the worship wars in the in the 80s and they're starting to come back. We there were a lot of eschatological wars, fights over your eschatology, especially in the 70s. And you know, people are seem to be stoking the pot. Like I like to think about these things, but I'm not going to be divisive about that. I'm I, I've been around the block too many times. Like there's absolutely no way that you're going to hear me denouncing a particular eschatological position as falsehood and error and horrible. I have a view um that uh you know I've articulated in the, in this show in the past, but I don't want to be I don't I don't think this tribalism uh along the lines of you know eschatology is healthy and I, I think actually I, I would just say I think it's foolish. To, to pick a lot of these fights. So articulating your position and having conscientious debate about it is important, but people po- post stuff on on social media, you know, like this position is biblical, prove otherwise. Come on, man. Hmm. Like that's not, that's not cool and it's not wise. So um, know your stuff, but studying history helps you to see some of these disputes that we have in a, in in a, a broader backdrop of church history and when there is falsehood being taught you sort of you can head it off at the pass sooner than later if you and it usually repackages itself there's a different voice and different face behind it but it usually resurfaces heresies and falsehoods resurface so if you study history and you see them coming uh, again, then you can kind of nip them in the bud early on without making you know, non-issues issues. Inspect 
what you expect. So a good leader, if they've given out assignments and delegated responsibility, everyone's is going to stick their head in and make sure that their expectations are being met. So you need to inspect once in a while mm-hmm. the ministries that you've assigned. For example, this is just an st- extremely concrete, practical one. We have a facility team here at the church. We have a facility manager and custodian. So every once in a while, I'll just walk through the building. I'll just have a look around. Do I see any cobwebs? Do I see anything that's out of place? Do I see anything that's broken that we've walked by 50 times we're not thinking about anymore? I'll just inspect it in order to reinforce the expectations that I have of our facility team. But what you don't want to do is micromanage. I know pastors that do this. I was asked to speak at a a church conference once and the guy wanted me to send him like my prayer in advance scripted out every word I was going to say I'm like dude I didn't just stumble at a seminary like give me a general give me some boundaries but give me a break too yeah so you need to let there's always the time when the first the intern has to preach his first sermon and it's probably not going to be that great and the youth guy needs to run his first event and you're in your first counseling session, you're doing your first funeral, you're doing your first wedding, you're running your first small group, you're teaching your first Sunday school class. There's a major learning curve to that. It's hard, but you don't want someone breathing down your neck, micromanaging every element of your ministry. Not only is it exhausting and controlling, but it causes ministries to be bottlenecked. Pastors of growing churches, should have created structures and delegated leadership to the point that the vast majority of things that are happening in the church they don't even know about. Mm -hmm. That's when you know you're doing your job. When you show up on Sunday morning and there's announcements taking place and you're hearing them for the first time, just like other people are in your church. For some guys, they just can't even fathom that. You know, they wrote the order of service. They do the follow-up letters. They, like, everything revolves around them and it's not healthy. Hmm. Yep, it's good. Opportunity doesn't equal calling. Just because there's an opportunity, I was told this from someone else years ago, just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean it's your responsibility to meet it. You will be inundated with endless opportunities to serve, to preach, to speak here, to do this, to run this ministry, to run that ministry. doesn't mean you're the guy called to meet it. Stay in your lane. Stay focused. 90% of your time should go into one area of, uh, of ministry. That probably applies to as well for a church because I know churches sometimes do everything they try to do everything try to support every missionary try to support every opportunity special interest group it's just not possible right oh yeah you'll always have people coming hey can we can we do this can we start a soup kitchen a university ministry um a ministry to the homeless an addiction recovery ministry an anti-abortion ministry a political activist ministry uh you know a, a substance addiction ministry it's like dude we already got 30 ministries taking place like we can't do everything if, especially if you're in a town where there's multiple churches, it's not like a terrible thing to focus on the community that God has entrusted to you, a part of it. We're a suburban church. So most of our ministries, we're not apologizing for this, it's just reaching middle-class, regular, run-of-the-mill people and all the standard issues that they have. We're not opposed to urban churches, it's great. We're not opposed to rural churches, it's great. But we're a suburban church. And so we tend to just be full of middle-class people, and and that's fine. 19 is uh, seek counsel to affirm your calling. Um, There's nothing worse than a person that thinks they have gifts they don't. And so as you're discovering your area of service, make sure you're asking people, like, do you think I have gifts in this area, or should I 
Maybe look elsewhere. Better for you to ask than for you to be told, right? 20 is, um, the 20th lesson is that people are, are easy to pastor, easier to pastor, and easier to understand if you just believe and you, you understand that people are more similar than they are dissimilar. We often focus on our differences. Oh, you have a different skin color than me. Oh, you're a woman. I'm a guy. Oh, you, you're a different age. Oh, you have a different way of communicating. But at the heart of it, we're far more similar than we are dissimilar. Similar fears, similar issues, similar dreams, similar hopes, similar struggles. And if you watch people and observe people and pay attention to your own life, you'll be able to preach with a shotgun on a Sunday morning or, or lead with a shotgun. You'll be able to, when, you know, when you fire a shotgun, it's, a, it's, it's not specific, it's not one round hitting one target. It's multiple pellets hitting multiple targets. And the more you understand people and the more you understand that people are more alike than different, when you preach and teach, you can preach with a shotgun. You can just bless and impact far more people. Maybe mixing the illustration of a shotgun and blessing isn't the greatest use of the illustration, <laughs> but uh, hopefully people you know, get the point. Exactly. It's a confetti gun. It yeah. spreads the joy. <laughs> it's a glitter gun. When you shoot your glitter gun. <laughs> that sounds worse. We're not one mind. of those churches. The glitter gun. Get the glitter gun out. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. 21, let your relational default be trust. I just refuse, in spite of all the weirdness that I've experienced over the years and the people that have been disloyal or fallen away from Christ or attacked me, I'm not going to be the guy that lives with a, in a constant state of fear and distrust in people. So let your default be trust. So when you meet someone, your de default should be trust. Within limits, not like you're going to trust them with your bank book necessarily, but you, you're going to, the default should be trusting people. And that helps you to think the best of people and want the best for people. So I, I'm not denying the doctrine of total depravity, but I have a sort of an optimistic view. When someone comes into the church, I have an optimistic view of, of who this person potentially is and who this person can become. And I just, I just want to push them to become closer to the Lord and more competent in their their ministry. And I'm not going to be jaded with cynicism and negativity, mm -hmm. although life experience is going to make me aware and discerning of the fact that there's some bad people in the world and some of them show up at church and you got to be careful with them. Yeah. It, yeah. It brings out the best of people when you are optimistic about them, but also not, I like we talked earlier, not idolizing a person or right. building it all around that one person so dependent that if they don't stick around, everything collapses, right? Yeah. Lesson number 22, do not allow jealousy to ever even enter into your mind when you're doing the work of God's ministry. Don't compare yourself to others. Learn from others. There's a, a certain healthy competitiveness that can take place even between churches in the same town, right? Oh, they're running a big day camp. We better up our game. That's, that's a good thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. But no jealousy. At the end of the day, we take none of it with us. It's a stewardship. We don't own it. So just forget about competing. We, we, I heard a story recently of a, a church that that uh, heard that we'd had whatever thirty or thirty-five baptisms. It said, "Oh, it, it can't be true." It's like they're accusing us of lying. Are you kidding me? They were making it up to outrank you on social media. Um, that says more about you than it does about us. So it's not about let's let's be let's encourage 
other churches or ministries when God is using them to bear fruit, instead of thinking, oh, well, why aren't we bearing fruit? Or they must be compromised. This is another thing, sidebar. I get so angry at people that there's a revival taking place or there's there's exponential growth, and the automatic default for some hyper-conservatives, they must be compromised. If they're growing, they must be compromised. If God's blessed, if, it, if they're ta- selling, saying God's blessing them, they, they must not be. Now, I get it. There's growing ministries, quote-unquote, that aren't godly ministries. A growing church is not necessarily a godly church. A growing organization is not necessarily a godly organization. I mean, the state is growing. The bureaucracy <laughs> yeah, is growing. That's a good point. But uh, a faithful church will grow. I'm just going to say it. It will grow. Mm-hmm. And if it's not growing, you need to rethink things. So d- don't don't bother comparing comparing yourself to others. People sometimes ask me, hey, did you hear what such and such said? It's like, man, I I don't really pay attention to what's going on in a lot of other churches. I have a general awareness of it, a very general awareness. I don't really pay much attention to what's going on in so-and-so's church. I spend most of my time pastoring my own sheep, not looking over the fence to see how my neighbor's sheep are doing Mm -hmm. or counting his sheep and feeling bad because I have a smaller flock. It's immature and it's unhelpful. Mm Ditch the employment mindset. In the old days, you'd never dream of talking about being an employee of a church, but that language has crept into the life of the church, and a lot of guys, frankly, act like hired guns, and they're easily manipulated when you act like a hired gun in the life of the church. We saw this during lockdowns. Well, I want to stand up, but my elders don't agree, so I don't want to lose my job. And really, you're acting like an employee, like act like a pastor. Again, this is more for those that are on staff at churches. By the way, if people know you're not, you don't have an employee mindset, it it completely cuts them off of the legs from manipulating you. I, I remember preaching on this one time how I just, I don't care about losing my job. It's not even a factor. When I'm making decisions, it doesn't even cross my mind, oh, am I going to lose my job? I don't even think about that because I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the paycheck. And I think one guy was quite thrown off because I know he has a history of going from church to church and causing problems. And as he was talking to me, I could kind of tell through you know, some discernment that I've developed over the years. He was kind of put off, and I believe he was put off because he realized he couldn't manipulate me, right? So it's it's freeing when you don't, I mean, are we, quote unquote, employed to use the world's terms? Yeah, we are. There's responsibilities, there's job descriptions, there's, um, you know, we are being supported with the Lord's money, but don't act like an employee. The paycheck you don't pursue the paycheck. The paycheck just comes after you to bless you, to sustain you in your ministry. Okay, here's a big one. Um, just be careful in your interaction with the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. I like the Billy Graham rules. A lot of people balk at it, but it's really important. You need to treat other people in the church like brothers and sisters. I'm a male. I'm a pastor. I have to pastor men and women. But I treat the women of the church, I, I believe, as my sisters. I don't treat them like my second, third, and fourth wives, right? I, I maintain boundaries. Mm-hmm. They're not in the office with the door closed and the blinds shut. I'm not driving them from point A to point B. I'm, I'm hyper aware of what it appears like if we're chatting in the foyer. I don't, I don't um, I'm not like walking on eggshells or, or advocating for some sort of a hyper tenseness when we're interacting with members of the opposite sex. But if you haven't studied the Billy Graham rules, just Google it. They're really, really important. Maintain boundaries. You shouldn't be alone in an unaccountable place with members of the opposite sex unless it's your daughter, granddaughter, grandma, mom, you know, 
sister, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we, in a, in a, uh, age of more technology than Billy Graham was probably exposed to most of the time, you have to think now creatively about how that manifests online. Right. So yeah. not counseling women through text message or something like that. Right. Yeah. And yeah very good. Yeah. Stuff. Probably not counseling anybody through text message really, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Just be very, if, if you're sending a text message or email, it's very, to the point, matter of fact, not rude. Yeah. You don't want to freak women out in the church by thinking that you think they're coming on to you all the time. But there needs to be appropriate boundaries there. So we're not creating a culture of fear or distrust, but we're just, we're, we're concerned about optics. We're concerned about sexual temptation. And we're concerned about being an example to others for whom sexual temptation may be a, a, a vital struggle and temptation for them in the moment to set that example. Mm -hmm. Consider what people think or say. This would be lesson 25, but but don't be a people pleaser. Just don't be a people pleaser. Consider what people think. But when you're making a decision, if you're like, eh, I just want to please such and such, I just want them to stay, don't don't bother doing that. Um, in growing ministries, you're gonna people are gonna come and they're gonna go. You just need to be comfortable with that. Be a principled leader. Yeah, and I was gonna say, if you change this is just to buttress that comment. Sometimes when you change for a person, the person leaves anyways. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I changed for you. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's that's true. I mean, if you spend your time trying to keep people, that's an exhausting, exhausting kind of a relationship. Do as best as you can in developing good social skills. The more types of people you can interact with, the more traction you'll get, depending on your family of origin, your personality. Some people just have a maybe greater bandwidth in the area of social skills than others, but social skills grow and develop as you spend time with other people. And uh, it, this happens with young people, right? So youth, young people like bully and jab and comment much more freely on other people's appearances and we think, oh, that's bad, but it actually does help socialize others. People that are very isolated tend to struggle in relationships when they're older. It's like I was told once, that a puppy that's introduced to 200 people before it's four months will almost never be aggressive because it's just used to interacting with a variety of people. But after four months, something happens. And if it's only been around a very limited number of people, it can become more aggressive. And in a rough way, I think that's true of people. There's a, there's a period of time when it's healthy to be exposed to a lot of personalities and a lot of different situations. It helps you just to stick handle people in life a little bit better. And some people are are socially more socially awkward and that that can be fine. You know, there's a place in the kingdom of God for that, but we should all be developing our abilities to be more relational, uh, uh, more comfortable around different kinds of um, you know, personalities. So we might need to sort of force ourselves out of our protective little bubbles to expose ourselves to other people so we can grow in that in that way. Uh, it's 27, have a have a life outside of ministry. Again, it's not your identity. Live a well-rounded life. If you like kickboxing, kickbox. If you like to cycle, cycle. If you want to raise guppies, raise guppies. Um, have, have things that you can do outside of the church as, as part of your you know, broader stewardship of life. Develop some interests. Get involved in sports. Take up a hobby. Buy a hobby farm. Um, you know, maybe have a, uh, you know, for the girls, go scrapbooking on a given weekend, whatever, whatever 
types of things interest you, it's really important to have outlets. I I almost burnt out in my late 30s because I realized I was so hyper-focused on ministry and schooling and that, that I, I just, frankly, I wasn't enjoying life. I was just driven to do, 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 and accomplish, and accomplish, and accomplish things for quote-unquote Christ. I didn't realize that farming or karate or these other things that I scuba diving, these other things that I've enjoyed over the years are are honoring to the Lord. If I do it as un, unto the Lord, if we can eat and drink as unto the Lord, then we can scuba dive as unto the Lord. And it just helps you to, to um, find that, that greater balance and appreciation for the, the broader gifts that God has given to us in life. And I think it's, you, you made a comment earlier, it helps people to, people are always looking for points of connection. So if they hear, oh, you scuba dive, I scuba dive too. Oh, I don't know, you, you have a child, I have a child too. Oh, you you do this, I do that too. It's a point of connection. It helps them to relate to you, and that's important. To mm-hmm. I, I think too many pastors are, are bookworms, and that they need to develop some hobbies and some skills outside of the church. That actually can be a great ministry for you as you show yourself to be you know more of a jack of all trades instead of feeling you have to be you know just a master in the pulpit or in your particular area of uh, of service mm-hmm. yeah couple left well um serve but don't let people treat you like their servant it's not good for them and it's not good for you so serve serve in the most obscure minuscule ways if necessary but don't let people if you're a leader don't let people treat you like their servant don't let people walk on you. It's not so much about defending yourself, but it's just not good for them to to be able to treat other people that way. And there's a weird dynamic in the life of the church, especially if you're a pastor. On one hand, you're the leader of the church, but on, on the other hand, people can think, well, you're everyone's servant. They're all your boss. And that is not, it's not biblical, and it's not a healthy dynamic to live in as well. And that shouldn't surprise us. If it's not biblical, it's not going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. That's not how God has designed things. 29, change things. Here, I'm going to throw this out. Change things just for the sake of change. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> change is is natural. Change is not abnormal. So so often in Christian ministries, we're, we're terrified of change. I'm terrified of a lack of change. Because I, I know with a lack of change, we can quickly become institutionalized, traditionalized, legalistic, and mindless in our ministry. You should be changing things all the time. If your church or organization isn't used to change, start in small areas and make regular change. Keep It keeps things fresh and it's reflective of life. Life is about constant ongoing change. There's new personalities, there's new perspectives. Sometimes you see this in churches where they, they bring a pastor in and he wants to make changes and he fights with them for five years and he, he, you know, he can't, uh, get his way or can't make the necessary changes he feels he needs to make and they toss him out so then another guy comes in and he has a different way of doing it so the change almost takes place in blocks rather than in a more natural mm-hmm. progression so the change comes about by changing the person out but even if someone is in a ministry for a long term there should long term and I am an advocate of that there should be ongoing change that takes place on a daily, if not regular basis, always fresh, always new, always rethinking things. 
a buddy of mine said, oh, we should do this annually. I said, we don't do things annually in our church. We don't use that language. Like it might be annual and certain things are annual, but we don't annualize things. We make a fresh decision every year, every day, or whatever it might be. Unless the Lord has said, you know, meet every week, well, then we meet every week. But um, and we don't change the Bible, and we don't, you know, change the, the ordinances. But the, in the areas we can change things, you know, we change our music, we change our seating arrangements, we've changed our building, we, you know, we, we change our decoration, we've changed our leadership, we've changed some of our leadership structures. We're always changing. Not mindless change, but... At the same time, change in and of itself can be good. It communicates renewal and freshness and thoughtfulness to your congregation. And finally, and this is not saving the best for last by any means, but uh, just delegate, train, equip, build other people up, aim for excellence, not perfectionism. Uh, So many guys don't train other people up in ministry. It's like every time they need a, a new pastor, they have to put a job posting out. Why are you not training up your own leader? There's some people think they're a high-capacity leader, but they always have to go outside of their church or organization whenever they want to fill a role. Then you're not a high-capacity leader. You may be a high-capacity manager. You may be a high-capacity communicator. You may be a catalytic leader, but you're not actually training people up and delegating and equipping people for the work of the ministry. So take seriously your task to create those lieutenants and sergeants and corporals, training up new people, developing new leaders is is something we probably should be spending the majority of our time doing through our preaching, teaching, and and relationships. And then as the as the work of the ministry grows, we have lots of people to to plug into different areas areas of ministry, and that's that's pretty exciting. So those are those are thirty lessons. Um, uh, you know, I've learned in the last 30 years is there's been many others of course but hopefully those are a blessing to um you know people that are wanting to grow in their leadership capacities and i'm looking forward if the lord keeps me here to to having um, another podcast in 30 years called 60 lessons i've learned in 60 years (laughs) (laughs) that's good well thank you aaron appreciate that um to our listeners you got bonus content today so we went over an hour we don't have some special pay-only access thing. You get this for free. So, um, But thank you, Aaron, for spending the time to walk through those 30, 30 lessons. And we pray they are a blessing to you as a listener. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast both on the pursuitofglory.org website, which is Pastor Aaron's personal blog, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. <laughs>